Well, before too many of us get way too excited about the fact that there are only three verses printed in your bulletin this morning on which I'm going to preach, I'm going to take large buckets of cold water and start pouring it on your excitement and let you know that that's a typo. We're actually starting in verse 28 of chapter 18, and we're going through the whole book of Acts. No, <laughs> we're not. We are going to go through verse 40, however, 28 through verse 40. Last week, Aaron entitled his sermon, Saving Irony. And neither he nor I want to assume that everyone in here knows necessarily what irony means, especially for our young worshipers. So young worshipers and theologians, let me kind of explain what irony is for a second. Irony is when something appears on the surface to be one thing, but it's really actually underneath something else. So a couple weeks ago, I kind of borrowed from the imagery of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, the book and the movie, I suppose, where Aslan is brought to the table where he is going to be killed by the witch and all of her evil creatures, all of her evil servants. And it appears like Aslan is going to lose. It appears like this is a bad deal. This is where the good guys, this is where the good force is going to lose and evil is going to win. That's what it looks like. But it's ironic because in the end, Aslan comes back to life again. And because he gave his life for another, because he gave his life for Edmund, when he comes back to life, he can crush the witch and all of her forces. The reality is something underneath. That was the true thing that was happening at that table. That's what irony means. It's a picture of it. Last week, Aaron demonstrated for us on many points how Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin and the high priest Caiaphas was ironic. We got to see the irony of Peter's denials only a few short hours after he was ready to go to war and ready to start slicing off people's ears for Jesus. He's all of a sudden very afraid. He was unafraid of soldiers in a garden, and now he's very afraid of servant girls. And we saw Jesus, the great high priest of his people, whoever lives to make intercession for you and me before the Father, not needing a sacrifice for himself, as the writer to the Hebrews says, that Aaron alluded to a moment ago. He doesn't need anyone to intercede for him. This high priest is being judged by a false, ignorant, prideful, self-righteous, and jealous, murderous court of high priests. And the truth is that the sermon that I preached a couple weeks ago at the beginning of chapter 18 in the garden, Jesus' arrest and trial could have been titled Saving Irony Part 1 because the irony starts at the beginning of chapter 18. Jesus is betrayed in a garden by a false friend like Adam and Eve were. Jesus is bound and thrown out of the garden like Adam and Eve, but not for his own sin, but for theirs and for ours. And Jesus lets his people go from his enemies, being the second prophet that would come as Moses promised so that he could drink the cup of wrath from his father. So when we get to our third passage from chapter 18 this morning, we, we have not stepped off the irony train. 
Instead, the irony is just picking up steam, and it's going to take us through the rest of chapter 18 and into chapter 19 next week. Like a cheesy action or horror movie that never stops being made, this morning's sermon could be entitled Saving Irony Part 3. Because in it, we're going to watch as the representative of Roman power, the greatest human government and military machine of the known world at the time, is going to question the king of heaven and all creation. Taking collectively Jesus' religious trials from last week and then his secular trial this morning, the irony presented causes us to ask the question, who's really on trial here anyway? Who is really the accused and who is really the judge? And we find three things. What we find is that God's saving irony in the person of Jesus is pursuing self-confident, self-righteous, manipulative, false disciples. And God's saving irony in Jesus, secondly, is pursuing indifferent comfort-loving and secular skeptics. And finally, we see God's irony as this mock king of the Jews, who's really the king of creation, becomes the substitution for a man who is actually everything Jesus is accused of being. This is the good news of Jesus that surprises us with its irony, taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 18, verses 28 through 40. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. And Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? And after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Let's pray. 
Father, this morning, we ask you to reveal to us the love of your gospel, the love that pursues us through your Son, who takes no shortcuts but goes through the long anguish and the suffering of his passion. Out of your love for us, out of his love for you and his love for us, give us eyes to see it this morning. Encourage our hearts in your passionate pursuit of your people. Give us these eyes to see this in your scripture this morning by the Spirit. In the name of the Son, amen. You can be seated. Well, a while ago, my daughter, Arby Grace, came up to me with her hands full of stuffed animals, ready to start out on another pretend storybook adventure. She looked up at me and she let me know that she was once again on her way to Grandma's house. But it was very far away, and so she and her entourage were headed to the airport. It was really kind of a very modern answer to an age-old problem. There was not going to be any scary woods with wolves dressed like old ladies, no lions or tigers or bears, getting to Grandma's warm and cheery house filled with good times and baked goods was only going to be as easy as reaching the right departure gate. It was just a textbook description of a shortcut. And we like shortcuts. I do. As Ellen will tell you, one of my pet peeves, actually one of my pet peeves is the word pet peeve, but another one of my pet peeves is being stuck in traffic. That's when I want a shortcut the most. And as we dig deeper and deeper into the darkness of chapter 18 and 19 of John's Gospel, we see that Jesus is not taking any shortcuts in his fulfilling the Father's mission. And he's not taking any shortcuts in his pursuit of you and me. He'd already rejected all the shortcuts thrown at him by the devil in his temptations in the wilderness. He had already laid them all aside to endure the great saving irony of his suffering. Throughout all four Gospels, we find swirling around Jesus' mission two constant groups of people who have always been and who always will be with us until Christ's return. First of all, we have the all-too-familiar religious fundamentalists who are self-righteous and hypocritical and judgmental and fully convinced that they're right even as God tells them to their face day after day that they're wrong. And secondly, we see indifferent secularists, not concerned with any single truth, but more concerned with maintaining social order and comfort and pleasure and power according to the rules of their own game. And throughout this narrative, we're almost confronted with the two brothers of Jacob and Esau again. I almost entitled the sermon Jacob and Esau and Jesus. Only this time, both Jacob and Esau in our passage end up condemned because they both reject the true Israel that Jacob 
was only a type of, a signpost to. In the Jewish leaders, we have God's old covenant, Jacob, again plying their wily, manipulative self-righteousness, doing all that they can in secret, behind people's backs, under the cover of darkness, concerned about their own interests and their own birthright, fully deceived as to their own good intentions. And then we have secular, indifferent Esau in the person of Pilate, concerned only with comfort and pleasure, not wanting anything to interfere with his worldly success and good food and good drink and good sex and more time in front of the television. And here's the surprising part. In our passage this morning, we find both sides at war with one another like we're used to seeing them being. But they're only at war with one another for as long as it takes for them to make peace over destroying Jesus. That's what brings them together. Well, we're going to start first by looking at Jacob, the religious leaders in verse 28. We see at first... The, in, the incredible hypocrisy of self-confidence wedded together with self-righteousness. And we have to understand here before we want to get on our own high horse and cast judgment on them, we don't want to miss that as obviously evil as this appears to us with our advantage of hindsight provided by the Holy Spirit in the scriptures, you have to understand from their perspective, they're doing God a huge favor at this moment. And in their own unwillingness to be associated with this Gentile ruler by remaining ritually clean for the Passover, not entering the praetorium, I mean, this is, this is a no-brainer for them. It's second nature. They're not even thinking about it. In their minds, they're exposing a false teacher, something that, we all should be willing to do where we called upon to do it at some point. And they're exposing a false teacher while with reverence following the ritual worship of their faith at the time. Their righteousness is not missing a beat in their mind. And the ritual they want to observe is the old covenant meal. The Old Testament Lord's table, the Passover, communion with God. And yet, they have no communion with God because they have rejected the God literally standing right in front of them. And it shows in how they have missed the gospel of love. They have no love for the Gentiles. They hate them and exclude them while envying and coveting their power all at the same time. Pilate asks them what charge they're bringing against Jesus, and they dodge the question in verse 30. In essence, they kind of seem to be saying, don't question our motives here, Pilate. We know what we're doing. You know us. I mean, we of all people know the difference between good and evil, and we're telling you this is a bad one. In other words, they had no charge that could really stick. But they just knew in that still, small voice in their hearts. 
that they could smell a rat. And after all, being the righteous and upstanding and well-intentioned people that they were, how could they be wrong? And so they bear false witness against Jesus. Not just at this trial, but beginning with all the religious trials that had gone on all night. Murder, the sixth commandment. Profaning of true worship, second commandment. Rejection of God as God, the first commandment. Profaning of the Lord's name in his body, third commandment. Bearing false witness, the ninth commandment. The breaking of God's commands continues completely unnoticed by the self-righteous. And interestingly enough, throughout this, this trial scene, in the original Greek, the Jews don't refer to Jesus with a personal pronoun like he or him. They dehumanize and depersonalize him by referring to Jesus as this one. Or in our vernacular, this guy, this character, this piece of work, maybe something even more crass. The Pharisees are doing what we all do. We dehumanize so that we can demonize, so that we can justify our own sin, our own point of view. I actually think it's somewhat behind the reasoning behind the pro-choice agenda, actually, in our country. It's not unborn life. It's a fetus. It's not an unborn child or a baby. It's tissue in the uterus. It's not a him. It's not a her. It's an it. And if we dehumanize the unborn child, then we can justify our own sense of ownership over a life that's actually created and owned by God. And we can do with it as we please. And it's what we do when we lust sexually for someone. We dehumanize and we objectify the person so that we can justify thinking about him or her, fantasizing about him or her in whatever way we want. She's not someone's daughter. She's not someone's wife or mother. That totally ruins the fantasy. She's a thing that exists for my pleasure. And even beyond these scandalous sins, every day in our homes, when we respond to our children or to our wives or to our husbands, even in our hearts with that woman you gave me, Lord, these kids, that man, We dehumanize so that we can demonize, so that we can justify being angry at others who have sought to rearrange our idols of control or comfort for us. And we'd rather them just leave them alone. And this is what the Pharisees are doing with Jesus in this passage. The Pharisees' blindness and numbness and seeming stupidity to what constitutes true holiness versus a murderous heart towards an innocent man is mirrored in all of us going back to the garden. The first thing that sin does is make us selfish. And the second thing that sin does is make us stupid. In truth, 
The irony of the Pharisees' pretend righteousness is that they're seeking to kill the only righteous man who's ever lived. The great theologian Augustine writes, They, the Pharisees, were afraid of being defiled by the praetorium of a foreign judge and had no fear of the defilement of the blood of an innocent brother. And so we seek from looking at the self-confident, self-righteous, manipulative, manipulative Jacob to the indifferent and comfort-loving, pleasure-seeking Esau in the person of Caiaphas. Pontius Pilate, the governor of all Judea on behalf of the Roman Empire, he hears the Pharisees' snobbish reply in verse 30, and he delivers a jab right back at them. Well then, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. I'm not going to get mixed up in your internal religious squabbles. I'm not going to risk my reputation by being associated with a bunch of radicals and their narrow-minded religion. I didn't get this far in my career by getting involved in such things. But when it becomes clear that they're seeking a death penalty by crucifixion, Pilate didn't have a choice to ignore it at that point. So Pilate has to go back again into his headquarters and question Jesus. Pilate's question of Jesus in verse 33 seems to indicate that he had heard of Jesus before. In the Greek, his question reads like, You? Are you this king of the Jews? And in what would have been shocking for Pilate, Jesus responds with a question of his own. And a question that's aimed personally at Pilate's own beliefs. Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Jesus responds with royal dignity, not like a common frightened criminal. In fact, his question almost sounds like that he's the judge and Pilate is the accused. And Pilate, of course, doesn't like this and he wants to put Jesus in his place and he tries to move on from Jesus' identity to Jesus' deeds and he asks in verse 35 what it is that Jesus did to put himself in this predicament. Not only that, he reminds Jesus that these small Jewish squabbles from Jesus' own people are really below such a sophisticated and cynical man of the world like himself. But Jesus' question in verse 36, his counter-question, doesn't let Pilate off so fast. In essence, Jesus says, I'm not ready to move on from the last subject, actually. You're on to something about me being a king, just not in the way that you thought. Don't try to move on yet. You're going to miss something really huge. And Jesus isn't just countering Pilate's smug authority with one-upmanship. He's not just saying to Pilate, I know you think you're in charge here, Pilate, but let me tell you something. The ultimate buck stops with me. Jesus really and truly loves Pilate. And he's inviting him closer. Jesus wants to explain the special nature of his kingdom. And in the Greek of verse 36, Jesus' words are not like a simple possessive, my kingdom, but instead it's a special construction for emphasis. It would be better translated, my particular kingdom. Or, the one and only of its kind, which is my kingdom. 
In other words, he's saying, all the other kingdoms pile in are rooted in this world and come from this world and are governed by this world's desires and principles. They're born of selfish power. They're sustained by gaining more selfish power and they're only lost when a greater, more selfish power comes along. They all wear a different veneer, a different exterior, but they're all the same underneath. Mine is not. Pilate still isn't responding to Jesus' implied invitation. Jesus is bringing the question back to his identity, causes Pilate in verse 37 to say, Aha, so, so you are a king. But Jesus is patient with him. He corrects Pilate again for a second time. Jesus says, You say that I'm a king. He's essentially saying, actually, I didn't call myself a king. That word is actually your word, if, if I might say so. And again, we're left asking, who's on trial here? Who is really the one asking the questions and who is the defendant? And I think it's worth us taking a second here and noticing that although John uses this intensely formal and legal scene to play all of this out, He's not giving us some kind of a belligerent, mean-spirited, you-can't-handle-the-truth kind of Jesus. So Christians that think that they're representing Jesus means being self-confidently crass and bold and edgy and controversial. You need to take the humility pill a little bit. I've read and heard and known way too many Reformed Christians that think this way and act this way. You probably do too. God doesn't need any help from our closet of cool. You just kind of want to say, you know, why don't, why don't you just take a seat and cool off a little bit? The truth is controversial enough. God doesn't need our help. Maybe spend some time with some Elderly Christians who've walked with Jesus for a while, been through the fire with him a few times, have the maturity scars to show it, see what Jesus is really like for a while. In Jesus' confrontation with secular Pilate, he's not being countercultural Christ here in some kind of bravado, edgy way. He's just Jesus. He's already been countercultural because that's what being incarnate in all things made like unto us, accepting sin, means. He doesn't need help. He's not going after Pilate here with cool. He's going after him with love, which is about as countercultural as it gets. Jesus brings the focus back to his identity. His being born in verse 37 highlights his humanity. His coming into the world from outside of creation highlights his deity. Jesus is the truth because in being God, he is the true measure of all reality. 
the one uniquely qualified to tell us what the measure of perfection looks like in any and in everything. And in becoming fully human, Jesus is now the bridge between truth and the creation that desperately needs to know it. He doesn't just come as an embodied philosophy lesson, but comes with the truth that perfection between God and us looks like love. The love that the Jewish leaders, for all the perfection and righteousness and reputation that they thought they had, loved that they did not have. And Jesus extends his loving invitation to Pilate right here. And he extends it to any of you here this morning, skeptical of who he is and what he's done. He says it in the next line, actually. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. It's an invitation for Pilate and for us, just like with Nicodemus in chapter 3, verse 21. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. In other words, Pilate, Pilate, skeptics from all history, are you listening? Now more than any other time in your life, pay attention. Listen to my voice. Be of the truth. Be one of those born of God and given ears to hear and know the truth. He's standing before you. And Jesus knew that as the French apologist Blaise Pascal writes, truth is so obscure in these times and falsehood so established that unless we love the truth, we cannot know it. Love for truth comes first. A desire for it, a love for it, comes before an understanding of it. And it's given by God. And tragically, Pilate chooses the way of cynicism. What is truth? He says in verse 38. And commentators are divided on how to take Pilate's comment because we don't know the tone of voice he used. But I take it cynically because it seems to match with his attitude throughout and the fact that he seems to immediately leave after saying it. But however Pilate means it, the hearers of John's gospel are again faced with the irony. The truth is standing right in front of you. The meaning of life, purpose of life, source of life is before you in full humanity and close enough and willing to embrace you. Pilate immediately leaves after his question leaving us to deal with the empty space that's heavy with meaning after his question so that we can ponder the same question. And so Pilate has to go back out to the Jews again. And Pilate's going back and forth from feeling the political and the social pressure from the Jews outside to becoming more and more convinced of Jesus' innocence inside the praetorium. It graphically pictures for us here the inner turmoil and struggle of his heart. Which am I going to choose? Will I choose to satisfy the aisles of social pressure and acceptance from the people under my rule? Am I going to choose to satisfy the idols 
of comfort by keeping myself out of trouble with the authorities above me, which this angry mob is definitely going to bring upon me if I don't give them what they want? Am I going to choose to satisfy the idols of pleasure that I enjoy every day by keeping my post as the most powerful man and prestigious ruler in Palestine? Am I going to see instead that all these things put together They're not going to equal one moment of joy in being properly related to this one, this God, this man who is the truth. This man who is not just some embodied principle of righteousness and truth, but this one man who is pursuing me with a love I've not known. What's it going to be? going back and forth from outside to inside the praetorium is symbolic of his seeking to have his cake and eat it too. His futile attempt to make friends out of light and darkness. And the whole tragic sham, the whole divine irony of this trial is made ridiculously evident in our last two verses. The sham both the Pharisees and Pilate had presenting all along is now evident in this last verse of chapter 18. Both have been pretending that they're concerned with a real criminal, a real revolutionary, a real threat to Jewish law and Roman rule. And what do they agree to in their lust to murder the Son of God? They agree to exactly that kind of person to release A man guilty of robbery and rebellion against the state and murder is set free so that a truly innocent man can die for the guilty. And we're left with the truly bad news about ourselves. Jacob or Esau, Pharisee or Roman. And what we will willfully choose, what we would rather have, who we would rather root for if given the choice and left to ourselves. A modern commentator named William Temple says, the world has its choice between the real king and the bandit chief. And we will choose the bandit chief every time, left to ourselves. That's who we'll pick. That's who we'll root for. But whether you're a skeptic or whether you're a believer who's been walking with Jesus a long time, this travesty of justice tells us the much more beautiful and the much stronger good news of what Jesus chooses for us. He wants us. Not out of his need, but out of his love for the Father and out of their love for us. Because that's what love is. And that's who he is. God's love and pursuit of us, Pharisee and secularist, is so strong in this passage that the good news comes out of the mouths and the attentions of depraved people who only intend evil. The Jews are going to once again sacrifice a Passover lamb on this Passover, only this time it's not going to be in obedience to God's command to offer a substitute for themselves. But it's going to be in hot and in cold-blooded murder. 
But this time, sacrifice is not just going to be for themselves while their Gentile enemies suffer judgment like we had in Exodus. This time, the sacrifice will be made with the help of the Gentiles, but it will be for the Gentiles as well. Notice Pilate's declaration of innocence to Jesus in verse 38. I find no guilt in him, he said. And in the Greek, it reads, I find not one single thing worthy of guilt in him. And because of Jesus' substitution, this is exactly what God declares over us as people. It sounds a lot like Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is now not one single element of condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's a pronouncement of innocence over us. It's a pronouncement of righteousness over us because of what Jesus is about to do. And the substitutionary sacrifice doesn't stop at declaring us innocent and declaring us righteous. It only begins this way. It only starts when God's saving irony, the one who gave his life as a substitute, continues to pursue the Pharisees in us who seem out of reach, continues to pursue in us the cynical pleasure seekers who want to live on our own island and be left alone to our amusement. It continues to pursue us the bandit rebels who are surprised to find our shackles falling off our wrists while sacrificial love tells us that we're free for good. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Holy Father, as we sang before, because the sinless Savior died, our sinful soul is counted free. For you, our God, satisfied to look on us to pardon me to look on Jesus to pardon us we see and find ourselves declared innocent declared righteous in this passage and yet we know it's just really the beginning of a relationship a beginning of a relationship in which all the things, the heart that you show for us, your people in this passage, continues to pursue us, continues to chase us in all the ways, all the places we may run. And it finds us with your love. And comforts us with your grace. Comforts us with your presence. Comforts us with the knowledge that you're defeating our sin not just to forgive us, but you're defeating our sin to make us more like you as we are. We give you thanks. This week, would you remind us of your love? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. At this time, you can bring your gifts and offerings to the center of the theater as we usually do every week and put them in the offering box.
we worship this great God that has pursued 